Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome once again uh, to St. John's Church. It's great to see you all. We're continuing, as we do in August every year, with our series on summer psalms. And uh, the aim of this little bit of time is that we might find some rest and some refreshment in the psalms, in those songs, hymns, prayers uh, of the church, uh, and indeed of Israel before the church. And uh, we've got, it's been wonderful, we had Jonathan preach with us uh, last week, we're going to have Morag preaching next week, which is a delight, and Andrew Large the week after, and on each occasion it's an opportunity for somebody to say something about a psalm that has been meaningful to them in their life, in their faith, in their worship. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the gift of these songs, these prayers, these hymns, which have sustained your people through centuries. And we pray that now you would open afresh to us these words of Psalm 77, that we might find rest and refreshment and renewal in you. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our precious Lord. Amen. So why did I choose Psalm 77 today to speak to you about? Well, I remember vividly reading this psalm at the age of 17. I don't know whether it was the first time that I had ever read this psalm, but I certainly remember that it made a difference to my life when I read it on that occasion. Now, when I was a teenager, I suffered from a condition that is known as adolescent angst. Uh, And let's be honest, I suffered this condition for a few years beyond my teenage years and into my 20s. I took myself and the world around me just a little too seriously. And I was often drawn into romantic and melancholic notions of myself in relation to the world around me. To be honest with you, now looking back, I had no serious woes or worries at that age. What affected me was common to most teenage boys, and hopefully some may relate to this, a degree of anxiety about how I measured up against my peers, a concern as to whether or not girls would fancy me, and a general sense that I might be misunderstood by the world, that my creative brilliance was not being properly appreciated or understood. And all of this was probably cultivated by that genre of romantic teen movies and dramas, which usually had at their heart a slightly misunderstood but brilliant young man at their center. There there was a version of these for women as well, with a kind of brilliant but misunderstood girl at their center. But it was films like Dead Poets Society, or Pump Up the Volume, or Heathers, or Party of Five, those sorts of things which kind of cultivated this image. Some of these names will be meaningless to you, some will be smiling inwardly as you remember these. I I certainly had a tendency at that age to believe that intense and melancholy was somehow cool as a demeanor, as a way of being in the world. And that to stay up late at night, to listen to edgy music, to scribble intense romantic poetry in my journal and to smoke cigarettes from my bedroom window was somehow like living out the starring role in my own American indie teen movie. Uh, In fact, if there was an image that summed it up for me, it's this. There we are. That was how I imagined myself, age 17, like Christian Slater in Pump Up the Volume, uh, speaking to the world over his pirate radio station on the airwaves. Now, sharing all of this with you now is not too embarrassing for me because I've learned to laugh at myself, at least my former self. But if I were to find any of my old journals and read entries from them, I'm sure I would be mortified. One of these late nights, perhaps around June 1995, 
I remember reading Psalm 77 that Bridget read for us today, and being caught up short by what I'm going to call today the perspective of providence. The perspective of providence. I wouldn't have called it that back then, but I think it best describes what I learned that night reading this psalm. So, what was it I learned? What changed my life,、uh, and how has it helped me in the years since? Well, let me try to explain that to you this morning. First, I need to say what I mean by providence. Providence is defined in the dictionary with these two definitions here as the foreseeing care and guidance of God or nature over the creatures of the earth, or more directly, it's described as this: God, especially when conceived as omnisciently, directing the universe and the affairs of humankind with wise benevolence. In other words, providence has to do with the notion that God is in control of human history, and that He is carefully guiding us according. To his goodness, but at this point I need to be clear: this is not as simple as saying that everything that happens in the course of history is God's will. That would be absurd, as there is all manner of evil and violence throughout history which is not God's will. Providence says something different. Different. Providence says that even in the midst of the troubles and trials of life, God's hand is gently guiding us, and that He can be trusted. He can be trusted, in the words of St. Paul, to work all things together for good for those who love Him. Providence is to say that, as Joseph does in Genesis, even that which is intended for evil, God meant to work for good. Providence is the confidence that God's redemptive hand is at work in all situations, and even where human freedom and folly chooses evil, as happens all the time, still God can work for good. God can take the mess, the rubbish, the detritus of the world, and fashion something good and beautiful and holy from it. Now, supremely, this is seen in the cross of Christ, in which God, our Creator, takes the freedom and the folly of His beloved creatures—a freedom and folly that is expressed in the rejection and the crucifixion of Jesus—and God can make it the very instrument of victory over the powers of sin and death. So, providence is both. About the ongoing care of God for His creation, and it's also about His special intervention to direct the course of humanity made in His image, to heal the brokenness of humanity when we wander astray. So, reading Psalm 77 that night, I encountered the new perspective of providence. What do I mean by perspective? How does this all work out? I love some of these. Images, clever camera tricks, where you see everything differently, and it messes with your eyes a little bit to think, "How am I seeing this? What's really going on?" Psalm 77 caught me short that evening in 1995, and I realised that maybe I needed to look a little more closely at what was going on. How does it work in Psalm 77? What is this perspective of providence? The psalm itself is attributed to Asaph. Now we're not entirely clear whether this is an individual or whether it refers to the Asaphites, the descendants of Asaph, the school of Asaph, who were temple singers and musicians. This is clearly a, a, a psalm that originated in the worship team, in the worship band. The nature of the intense and personal language suggests that it may well have been composed by a particular individual, but used and adopted to express a common human. Experience and the writer, in my view, begins a little bit of a mess. He begins a nighttime melancholic, calling out to God for comfort. 
Verse 2, at night I stretched out untiring hands. Verse 6, I remembered my songs in the night, both directly talking about nighttime. And verse 4 mentions it indirectly. You kept my eyes from closing. At the time when I was supposed to be sleeping, at night, you kept my eyes from closing. So I think when I read these opening verses of Psalm 77, suffering my adolescent angst, I thought, ah, you know, here's a companion, here's a fellow sufferer, here's somebody who understands my condition. I think I related to the writer of the psalm in that phase. As I listened myself to edgy and melancholy songs in the night on headphones or my hi-fi, my heart did muse and my spirit did inquire. Of course, it's possible that the psalmist is expressing something a little deeper than my adolescent angst. Possible that the psalmist is expressing the pain and agony of some serious misfortune rather than just being brooding and intense as I was. But even if the disease was different, the remedy was the same. The remedy was a changed perspective, a new perspective based on God's providence. And the critical turning point in the psalm is here in verse 10. Look at it in your Bibles if you like. Verse 10, then I thought, to this I will appeal, the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will meditate on all your works and consider all your mighty deeds. The psalmist decides to focus on what God has done in history. Our translation here in uh, our church Bible says that he will remember God's deeds and miracles, meditate on his works, consider God's deeds. Other translations use slightly different words to distinguish between the different kinds of activity that are going on. They talk about calling to mind, recalling, remembering, meditating, and then musing, or in early versions, exercising. Peculiar idea, but this idea that musing is somehow active. There's an activity associated uh, it occupies your attention and your activity when you muse on something, exercising. And so the Reformation priest and theologian Martin Luther, in his commentary on this psalm, took up this fourfold scheme of uh, recollecting, remembering, meditating, and musing. And uh, he claimed that our changed perspective involved these four progressive stages. We have a slide to show you how this works. First, a recollection of what God has done in our lives. The psalmist recalls God's deeds in history. Martin Luther invited us when reading this psalm to recollect God's works in our lives. Was there a time that we can call to mind when God provided for us, when he was faithful, when he healed us, when he moved us, when he renewed our hope? Can we recall a time simple mental recollection of events and incidences that relate to God's provision for us, a work of the mind. Second, can we remember God's providential care in our lives? And remembering, what's the difference between remembering and recollecting? Well, I think Martin Luther wants to suggest that this is not just an exercise of the minds, but there is an emotional work of reintegration. This is not simply about calling to mind, this is about holding somehow in your very being, in your spirit, in your heart, in your emotions, all that God has done. It's remembering as the opposite of dismembering. If dismembering tears apart the body, tears apart the self, remembering is about holding it all back together in one 
unit. It's about putting us back together again. It's about making us whole. It's similar uh, to the way in which Christ is remembered in every celebration of Holy Communion, something we're going to do a little later. As the reconciling work that he's achieved in reality is renewed in his church at peace with one another and gathered to his table. So recollecting a work of the mind, remembering a work of emotion, of the self. Third, it's a work of meditation. Meditation is about where we fix our gaze, where we focus our attention. Martin Luther said that meditation is related to desire and to delight. He said this, One does not meditate on the law of the Lord unless his delight was first fixed in it. For what we want and love, on that we reflect inwardly and diligently. But what we hate or despise, we pass over lightly, and we do not desire deeply, diligently, or for long. Therefore, let delight be first sent into the heart as the root, and then meditation will come of its own accord. Luther is saying that when we fix our gaze on Jesus, the one that we love, the object of our affection, the attention of our minds will follow. The attention of our hearts will follow. And that's why we spend so much time uh, given over to singing songs of praise and worship to Jesus, to God, uh, in our worship services here at St. John's. Because it's actually that time given over from fixing our gaze again, uh, refreshing and focusing our eyes on Jesus, that leads us into that place where we can meditate upon his love and his goodness. It helps us to cultivate a desire and delight in God. So it's a work of delight, a work of desire. So recollecting, remembering, meditating, and then fourth, we put all this work, all this to work by musing or exercising our confidence in God's providence. Now Luther believed that this process was not confined to the world of the imagination or the mind, but somehow must be expressed in active engagement. He believed that remembering, that putting together of the works of God must necessarily entail activity in worship and prayer. It could not be passive. It's not something that you can do just by yourself. You actually have to gather and pray with others and worship with others. It involves your life, your person, your being. He said this, the intellect remembers when it keeps busy meditating on these things. The will remembers when it keeps on loving and praying. The hand remembers when it is constantly active. It's as though he's saying, as with any craft, uh, if, if you keep on practicing your craft, if you keep on playing your guitar, if you keep on uh, writing or doing these things, your, your, your physical body will start to remember the way to do it. And he says if we keep on practicing worship and prayer and gathering together and, and, and doing works of service and love, then we will, we will remember how to do it. It will become instinctive. So for Luther, the changed perspective that all begins in verse 10 is expressed in recollection of what God has done in our lives, a sort of reintegration of the emotions, a remembering. Uh, it, 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 it works out as we delight in who Jesus is and meditate on him and fix our gaze on him. And then it finds its fulfillment as we put this all to work in prayer, in worship, in loving service of others. If we want to have change perspective. We want the perspective of providence. All these steps must ensue. Why should we do this though? What confidence can we have that God may be trusted as we seek this new perspective of providence? And the psalm has an answer for this as well. 
The answer that the psalm gives is that we can trust God because of his character and his deeds. Firstly, and perhaps most obviously, the psalmist appeals to God's deeds. He refers to the miracles performed by God, and he talks about how the descendants of Jacob and Joseph were saved. He's deliberately calling upon a historic narrative of the people of Israel. He brings to mind the work of the Exodus, in which the Red Sea writhed and convulsed, verse 16. How the Red Sea was parted, that the people of Israel may walk through from danger to safety. 90, verse 19, your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. The psalmist is appealing to the historic narrative of the Exodus to remind us of these deeds, these works of God. He's not witnessed them personally. They were long ago. But still the psalmist is content with the historicity of this saving work that he may trust in God's power. We too can look to historic events that we know have happened, how God has formed and preserved our lives, brought us to faith, how he has, uh, how he has guided his church, how he has been at work in our lives and in work through history. It's actually one of the reasons why, as Christians, we must resist that kind of cultural arrogance that sometimes takes hold where we think that today's present day is the most important day in history. And somehow, everything that we think and know now is the climax of everything that's ever been thought or known. Actually, ours is a historic faith. It's a faith in a God who works providentially through history. And so we must humbly look at the history of the church and the history of God and his people of Israel. We must look on the history of how Christ has been renewing his church throughout all ages uh, in a way that says a disposition of, can we learn? Can we learn from how God was guiding the church and caring for the church in a former age? Can we put ourselves under the authority of God's providence through history? That's quite countercultural in our age because our culture tends to assume that we're living at the very pinnacle, the very peak and climax of history. So that's the first way the psalmist suggests that we can have confidence in God through appealing to the historic work of God. But secondly, and perhaps less directly, the psalmist also appeals to God's character. Look at verses 7, 8, and 9. The psalmist describes God's character as being one who shows favor. God's character is one who has unfailing love, who makes promises, and who is merciful, who has compassion. Now, in each case, in verses 7, 8, and 9, God's character is described in the form of a negative statement in a question. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? But even in asking, will he never show his favor again, it's, it's assuming that God's character is essentially to show his favor. And that it is God's character being described through this possibility of its absence. This still presents what the psalmist perceives to be God's true nature and character. Now actually, this approach of appealing to a person's deeds and a person's character in terms of developing our confidence is one which most of us are familiar with. Because all of us commonly base our trust in our relationships upon track record and upon personal knowledge. So if I'm ordering some products from the internet, 
I don't have any direct knowledge of the sale per salesperson's or computer programmer's character, but I probably know which companies have been reliable in the past. I know which ones deliver on time. I know which ones can fulfill orders. I might even read reviews to assess a company's track record. I can look towards a history of works. If I'm wondering whether my parents will be able to support Caleb emotionally in his transition to secondary school, well, I don't have a track record to go on because it's never happened before, but I do know their character. I know what they're like, and so I can have confidence. If I'm wondering whether Sarah on Tuesday night will have everything packed and prepared, ready for me to load into our car to go on holiday this week, I have both track record and character to go on. I know that she's done it before, and I know that she's incredibly good at organizing and preparing things, so I can be pretty confident that when it comes time for me to load up the car and get everything ready, we'll be ready. Our confidence in God, our faith and our trust in him, is based on what we know of God's character, how he is towards us, and what we know of his works, his deeds, his track record, his history. So let me try and tie this together. One biblical commentator on this psalm said this. They said, most Christians realize that at least a part of their faith has to do with historical events. The death and resurrection of Christ are recognized as particularly important. Such a connection between faith and history, however, did not originate with primitive or early Christianity. Its roots go much deeper into the past. The psalmist reveals that Israelites gained strength and comfort by planting their faith firmly in the God who worked in history. It's exactly what this psalmist does. It's what Psalm 77 does for us. Reading this psalm can change us, just as it changed me at the age of 17 and has changed me in the years since. It can give us a new perspective. One member of our church emailed me a couple of weeks ago with a wonderful quote from Tom Wright, who says about the Psalms, says the Psalms themselves indicate that the human beings who sing them are actually being changed by doing so. Their very innermost selves, which include their physical selves, are being transformed. When we read the Psalms, when we sing them, sing them in the form of worship songs, they change us. This transformed self, this new perspective, the perspective of providence, can help us to lift up our heads from the woes and the worries that surround us. It can help us lift our heads from the adolescent angst that I was suffering, some of the self-pitying modes we can get into, and can help us focus with gratitude and confidence upon God's love and care. And this care is expressed as the psalm points us forwards from its own time to the time when God will most dramatically demonstrate his providential love and care for us. Because Psalm 77 builds the whole of its appeal to God's providential goodness upon the Exodus narrative. narrative. The mention of Moses and Aaron in verse 20 and the reference to the path leading through the sea in verse 19 make this clear. The psalmist is supremely looking to God's saving work in the Exodus. And just as God, through Moses, led his people from slavery in Egypt into freedom in the promised land, so too we look back to the great exodus in which God, through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, has led us from slavery to sin and death into the freedom of the promise of new creation. So when your soul is in distress, when you cry out to God in the watches of the night, appeal to this, the character and the deeds of the God who reveals himself to humanity in Jesus, the one who gives himself 
in sacrificial love for the world. The one who leads us from slavery into freedom, from death into life. Should we stand and pray?